Here we go! <laughs> Hello, welcome, welcome. <laughs> this is Omni the Podcast. I'm Gifford, and this is Luce. Hi. He's got a mic. I was just teaching him to, how to use it. Thank you. Uh, this is uh, sort of, you know, our first episode, so it seemed appropriate in some way to have an introduction. Uh, so I'm going to be called Gifford. You can call me Gifford. Uh, actually, I have lots of different names that people call me. Uh, most of them nice, but I'm, some not so nice. I think this the one thing I want to start off with just saying is that uh, I'm a uh, lifelong learner. I love learning every day. It's what gets me up. Uh, and I think that's going to bring some of this to the podcast where you hear about uh, finding interest in things. Uh, and one of the things I find most interesting is simply our human experience, what we're doing, why we're doing, where we're going, what we're doing. And so we're going to explore some issues uh, regarding that. Uh, Lewis, any uh, words you'd like to introduce yourself to episode one with yeah uh my formative years were in pittsburgh pa which i love and cherish much more than it deserves deserves much more uh those experiences really guided much of my socio-political perspective particularly with regard to labor and working class ideals and values i'm pretty passionate about independent music um especially music that's like really guided by punk ethos though not punk bands necessarily and I also really like the Pittsburgh Penguins and hockey. That is true. Uh, I often watch you watching uh, hockey you games. You do. Yeah. Uh, so this is what we're going to call the, the podcast called Omni, the podcast. So that's where you'll be able to find us on all the social medias when those ever happen. Uh, and the idea, Luce and I got together to bring, um, talk about certain segments, but put it together in the form of like maybe a magazine. So that's not all going to be a particular, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about science fiction only. We're not going to be a edgy news media, but we're going to have a little episodes for you to browse through our, our, our blocks in the episode. Uh, and we've got a, a few of them that we're going to, to lay out. Luz, how do you how do you feel about this project that we're getting off? I, I feel pretty good about it. I have to say, behind the scenes here, for those who have not heard our initial pilot, um, we sort of had a first run at this, and the format felt comfortable. We were happy with the uh, audio and the sort of like all the post production stuff was a lot of fun. We were feeling happy, but uh, the first run at it was a, a little bit of a shit show. But the general sort of trajectory of the show and the course of these sort of segmented sections was fantastic it was great it's going to have a lot of structure and format and skeleton for our shows moving forward awesome uh because our first block was what i actually proposed to you when we were starting to think like hey what could we do a podcast about and one of the things that we often find conversation about is some philosophy stuff and i thought oh, okay well wouldn't that be cool is to have a, you know one of our blocks about uh philosophy natural it's just consistent with our conversations that we're already having yeah and i thought because this isn't again it's not a philosophy podcast it's our pod zine or whatever uh so this block is going to be called three things philosophy where i would like to talk you know one concept or one idea one person one book something and um three things that uh, you might want to know about it (laughs) and if i was going to start it's kind of funny because i was joking with uh loose when we were uh before this about uh, having a a you know uh having a favorite philosopher what is that Uh, i kind of feel like it's sort of nerding out but so i wanted to start off by talking about my favorite philosopher and that is david hume 
If you do not know David Hume, he is a Scottish philosopher from the uh, 1700s, born 1771. He actually died 1776, very uh, potent year. Uh, and he was an empiricist, and the whole Scottish, you know, thinking at this time. So he's deep into to that. And the empiricism school is, of course, a school of thought that's contrasted by rationalism, and that was going on in the continent in France. So here's Hume and the empiricists, uh, you know, presenting ideas that were definitely the audience was the the rationalists. Um, Luz, do you, uh, are you familiar with those uh, concepts of empiricism and, and rationalism? Yeah, a little bit. Empiricism comes from knowing, believing, substantiating. All comes from the witnessed, viewable experiences as opposed to rationalism, um, whereby virtue and knowledge sort of derive and flow from reason, birthed in intelligence and ideas of the mind. And so really what that says, you know, what we're, we're thinking about is the empiricism. I got to be able to see it, taste it, touch it. And uh, in, in rationalism, you can actually just know things just by thinking about them, knowing that they're there. They can exist. You can rationalize them. Uh, I know that uh, China exists. Never, never been there. But I'm pretty, pretty damn sure it exists. Mm-hmm. And I can see where, and we've sort of talked about this in other previous conversations, that you know, rationalism, in my view, could be dangerous. It could be sort of a vessel for perhaps making people believe in, like, God or things that maybe they don't necessarily oh, witness, oh, yeah. hold, touch, and see sort of empirically right in front of them. So, um, But, of course, you know, the counter on that is uh, empiricism. If we, uh, we can't always trust our senses. Our senses sometimes... Uh, can lie to us. Maybe you can, but I, I think that I can. I can trust all of my senses. Well, you would. Uh, sounds like you might like uh, Hume a lot because not only uh, was he in the empiricist camp, it, he was also a quiet atheist. Uh, he was somebody that didn't really believe that you, that there's proof of God, and of course, if you can't measure it. Uh, however, I say he's a quiet atheist because he was aware of the situation that he was living in where everybody went to church. He went to church every Sunday. He knew the literature. He read the Bible. He uh, was aware of all the theological arguments, and he just concluded that um, there was an evidence for it. So the optics, the showing up, the community association and membership, and I think that you see still, I mean, is every politician not also like a quiet atheist? I mean, especially like... Oh, I don't know. Uh, the major, like, Democrat, like, nominee or Republican nominee. I mean, th- it's like suicide if they don't admit that they're Christian. When they might, in fact, re- in uh, reality, yeah, might, yeah. might not be. Whatever. But I can't say on the other side they're actually atheists. They just... Heavens uh, no. They could be Hindi. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, all right. So, um, first thing that we want to know about Hume uh, is that he was meta thinking. So he was thinking about thinking and broke down um, thinking, human thinking into two categories, impressions and ideas. And impressions are these, uh, what like hits our sensations, like when you turn the light on or you smell something, you know what it is. You know, those are chocolate chip cookies, uh, which I, I miss National Chocolate Chip Cookie Day, but that's what I might think about. Um, so those are uh, impressions, and those are 
you know, complete sensory information the brain is taking in. Everything else besides that are what he breaks down into the ideas. And ideas are the making sense of all the impressions. Now, those ideas are just that. They're not an actual, it's, it's our, our manipulation, the mind creating the idea. But it's not the actual, which would be the impression. So he broke our conscious thinking into those two categories. So let's move on to thing two. Thought you might have had something to say on that. No, keep going. You're good. <laughs> good, cool, good, cool thing two. Uh, oh, this is another one that I like too because he's a guy that wants to define everything by what you can measure and not measure. And so uh, he wrote about morality. That's a great topic. I hope we're hopefully spend more time on morality uh, philosophy because that's my favorite. Uh, but his take on it was that uh, moral um, couldn't be reasoned. We can't, uh, morality and ethics don't come from reason because we can fool ourselves, right? You know, go back to what he's talking about with ideas. Ideas, we can lie to ourselves about these ideas. So if we were basing ethics and morality on uh, being able, you know, the reality uh, or rationality of it, there's something uh, that's false about it. So he said you can only you had to trust your emotion when it came to morality. Do you think that's what the uh, the murderer was thinking about when they murdered somebody? Yes, that they they could you know rationalize it emotionally. It felt good, so it must be good to do that. Yeah, if it could be substantiated, like yeah, sure. I guess nobody wants to do anything that's they think is bad. Sick people do. Do you think Hume was thinking about sick people, or did he think that it was like a standard for? And obviously, he didn't know Hume, so. I think that he probably was not thinking about that or maybe there's just like a supposition or assumption that like the people who could even take on these th thoughts and sort of like wrestle with these ideas were of a sound mind and they weren't like, you know, antisocial or something, some sort of like norm violating tendencies and thoughts. Yeah, I I assume and he probably only thought about uh, the male perspective, too. And <laughs> that's just how these guys were like everybody. We are the example or of everything sane rational dudes men talking yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey let's get to thing three on hume and i hope we come back to you because there's so much more but this is something that is it boggles my mind because i've been thinking about a lot since i wrote you know was started writing about this the um he refuted the idea that of causality being factual so you don't ever know what causes something in um, and, and, and the you know, the classic example of this is that you see billiard ball A hit billiard ball B and then billiard ball B moves. We say, oh, well, A caused the B to move. But what Hume's saying is that if we get back to you can have to measure things and you have to be able to calculate and to, you know, to, to see things in, in that measurable way, you can't ever, there's no measurable thing to cause. Uh, you can't see, oh, there is causality. If it was a thing that existed, you should be able to see it. Or you could measure, oh, there was 2.5 cause here. You can't do that. And so uh, he says that what happens is we make a lot of assumptions. This causes that. And we, you know, generally it's right, but it could be fundamentally wrong. Like if you see uh, the sun go down and, the, and then the moon comes up, you say, oh, well, the moon caused the sun to go down. That would make sense, just like the billiard balls. But it's completely wrong. Love David Hume. I mean, think about this stuff all the time. That's he's a, he's a skeptic heart and heart. All right, moving on. Moving on. Block two. And this is something that... Uh, block two is going to be uh, about a 
something that you and I have we've conversed on before because both of us have a, a passion not a passion that sounds that sounds intense for a guy that you know um a, a desire to go check out new places obsessed there's yes. a so maybe it is passionate for you it's mildly passionate for me it's an addiction yeah I but feel I, like if I, I'm but going I love it to, I love checking out new places I feel, I feel like if I'm going to a place where I've already been I'm just like wasting my time because there's so much out there so much new cool stuff to see I'm not going to go that far, but I think it's always, um, you know, an experience to go check it out. See how, you know, because we've all been to a bar or a restaurant or to a venue or to a farmer's market. We've all done these things, but uh, going to a new one and checking out what's different here. Like saying there. But if there was just some way to like, you know, maybe getting, you know. Uh, a if way there to- was only a way to have a exclusive rating system. Yes, for these yes, exactly. It, some yeah. exclusive rating system. Yeah. An ERS, you might say, that we could <laughs> objectively <laughs> say how we like these things, and and so I think that we should try to to create this ERS. Okay. Yeah. Now I we're gonna have to come up with some categories, of course, for you know how we're you know to evaluate this. But I'd like to like set if we were to like think about our standards to maybe say is something. Does something meet our expectation? It, like, if we go into the place, it it is what it is, and that's good, right? I mean, that's you don't go to the hot dog stand and not get a hot dog. So you get, you know, it is what it is. So you know, that's kind of the the first level of expectation. And then there is exceeds expectation. This is something that it goes beyond. Like you didn't even imagine that would be there, and you are so thankful it is there. Uh, you know, you like going to the hot dog stand. So if you go to the hot dog stand. There's some hot dogs, maybe a couple of choices of sausage. This has got like uh, primo sausages. It has seven different toppings over here. Toppings you didn't even know go with on sausages. And then you you look back in the back, they got like some fancy dessert thing that looks so tasty. And you didn't even think that they would go with the hot dog, but it was there. That's exceeding expectations. That's not just a hot dog stand. That's an experience of a hot dog stand. And there's, you know, then so we got the meat. It is what it is exceeds then there's the um sub expectations uh it's trying it's trying to be there so you know again the hot dog stand you walk up there and all they have are those uh those vp uh 7-eleven hot dogs on the rotisserie just going around and around uh and yeah that's a hot dog stand but that's not going to get the job done at all how do do those seem like reasonable uh levels that we can do to yeah i think that those are good sort of criteria for looking at uh, an establishment or whatever i know there's also in our notes here we also have the fail uh category and maybe we might be able to consolidate that into generally the sub expectations one or whatever i mean if no that's like you go up to the hot dog stand and they're selling uh umbrellas and sunglasses okay yeah just completely off the yeah place. it's hard like to the, imagine the like, I, I almost like want to find the fail spot um, no come it's hard on to imagine like how off uh, spot, i teach students possibly. i have seen the abilities right. it's possible yeah okay <laughs> down, uh, down. okay so okay so if we have those like maybe you know i don't know a one, two, three, four kind of thing uh, on those uh, rankings. What kind of categories? What uh, kind of categories? Okay, so we have uh, first impressions. How does it feel, look, sound, smell when you enter? Just your initial sort of, uh, yeah, face value impression of the place. It's kind of like Hume. It's those impressions, right? It exactly. Is. Like what do you first Hume's learn? Purpose. <laughs> I didn't know. Hume is everywhere. Okay, yeah, okay. Um, then next we have quality, whatever 
the good or service is? Does it match the quality expected? Um, really just like, yeah, just the pure aesthetic, like quality. Of, yeah. If you're going to like lay out product. some money to go to a, a steak place, you, you know, you would expect to have good steak. Yeah, for sure. Next we have people. This is probably going to be my favorite because I'm all about like the really experience of the place. So how are the staff, the clientele, the, because that can define maybe what that experience is like. You could go to a total like schlub, like terrible like dive bar or sort of cafe or something. And if everyone there has attitude and is edgy, it just feels like a cool experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that restaurant we went to uh, the other night, um, I liked the people there. Like all the wait staff were nice, you know, made eye contact. They weren't sketchy yeah. kind of people. I, th- I thought that was nice. Fantastic. Yeah. The, the one that I put here, and I didn't know how quite to uh, define it, but it's, it's sort of that attention to detail, sort of the, the quality that uh, you're not supposed to see, but it is there. And I, and I don't want to call it cleanliness because it could be in a lot of different ways. It could be kind of the, the decor in the room where they just, uh, you know, nailed every piece in that room is, is where it's supposed to be in or it has to be. But it's also the, uh, I do want to say cleanliness because those are the kind of details uh, that can spill over. For example, if you saw, you know, flaking tiles in the bathroom and you can see that, well, what's going on in the kitchen? Is that something that uh, you want to have? You want flaking tiles in the kitchen? And so sort of the attention, I don't know, like, if that's a, a whole category in itself, but it is something that when I go to a, a restaurant uh, or a venue or anywhere, I do try to, to pay attention to that. I added a category here, um, and I don't really know how this is going to play out, but um, in this sort of fifth category that might not have as much weight for, to the total like number, like value of like the uh, score or whatever, is there an essential uniqueness about the establishment, about yeah, the venue nice. or the uh, spot? Is there is there something that sets it apart due to some remarkable, unparalleled feature that like other spots or establishments like just don't quite have? Something that is like only existing at that one spot? Yeah, that's kind of. I think that's a that's a great category, but again, I'm not sure that you know you can evaluate because if it was you know unique and unexpected, then it doesn't really meet expectations because that's you didn't expect it. Yeah, maybe we'll play around with that one a little bit. Yeah. Now, I don't know again about the scoring. You were saying that you wanted all the the scoring to add up to 69. Cumulatively, yes, the the top score needs. And to be I was like, that is how are you getting to that position? It is way too much math for me. So how do I get in the 69 position? Well, adding things up to 69, like are we going to like multipliers and things like that? And, you know, getting to 69 might be a little challenging, okay. but we'll see. This is going to be a work in progress. So I know this is episode one and uh, there's work to do on this. We're going to have to go check out a, a place and put this to the test and come back and, and compare notes. Do you have any uh, ideas on a place we should go before our next uh, where we can actually try out the exclusive rating system? I am constantly looking for what's new, and I have about, like, 20 to 25, maybe 30 different spots. Most of them restaurants. A couple of them are bars, but I'm usually more interested in trying something new for food. I have, like, my reliable watering holes where I know friends and good drinks are. I understand what the prices are. Yeah, I have I have a list. I have quite a list here of new places for food, especially, that we can go. We didn't put price on that list. I wonder if that matters. It matters to me. I know it matters to you. But it's also, uh, if you you have to ask you can't afford it yeah all right moving on let's go to block three and this one is simply about education now it's a wide ranging topic because there's a lot of things to talk about education 
And also, uh, for full disclosure, both uh, Luce and I are involved in education. Both. So we have um, we have some opinions. Uh, and it's a tough thing working in education. Kind of feel like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill every year, every year going on. Comes back down, got more freshmen the next year. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's always people want to improve education. Everybody has lots of ideas and it's not easy. There's a lot of systemic things that can't be changed. And so this question I want to throw out to you is is the, the blank check question. If there's, uh, Luce, if there's some uh, like a problem in education that you think that we could rectify just by throwing a bunch of uh, cash at it, you know, you could just solve that problem. Like if you, you know, want to you know put padded on all the desks, you know, and solve some problem there, could you? What and that's a silly example. I'm sorry, but where, I got you. Yeah. Where do you think you could throw some money specifically at education and see some make some improvements and see some changes? So I know this is going to be not very popular amid educators. Um, it's just really not a very popular perspective. Yet every educator I know, people who are not working in schools, who are on the outside, all recognize that there is just this huge behavior problem. Um, and we sort of approach this, I think, largely with these like pro-social and positive reinforcement like mechanisms. And we've really abandoned discipline. And that sounds like it's harsh. But, and I'm not saying necessarily like more SOR, SROs in schools, but really more staff, really more organization of our discipline systems and tangible consequences. I'm not talking about like punitive consequences necessarily or anything that's too harsh. All but right, show like, me the money. Where's the, where, where's the money? Yeah. Do, I mean, what are you going to do with the money? I give you a blank check. More, how are you spending it? more hall monitors. Um, you know, we have like in many schools, like a dean of students is responsible maybe for discipline. It works differently in other schools, the way that it's like structured with regard to like maybe an AP is assigned to discipline. But we're having like jobs and roles that are really designed to tackle and set some student code of conduct that is very clear, um, but also like extended, like really developed systems here so that whenever kids are caught, they can be held accountable because there are clear violations with clear consequences and having the staff to be available to enact that. Again, not popular. I don't care. Uh, no, I understand where the sentiment comes from. I have been in my classroom and needed uh, some support from a campus yeah, monitor. Students and, are getting away with and, murder every and single I, day. Every no single one came. Day. No one came. Right. I was called and called and no one came and I felt very alone and very isolated. It's a little bit of a difficult question for me because I work in special education. Like sort of going back to an earlier segment of our of this episode where we were talking about individuals who are not rational. I mean, I have a buddy who works in Houston Independent School District in Texas, and he had a student who was pretty deranged in his classroom, like pre pretty sick, sadly. And he was masturbating in the classroom oh, no. just just no. to himself, not openly, you know, under under the, under the hoodie or whatever like that. So he's at least keeping it to himself, but it was clear. And uh, my buddy noticed this um, and addressed him, and he just like freaked out. He freaked out in response to my friend just trying to talk to him and he had just like this explosive episode afterwards uh, a lot of yelling and pushing and shoving chairs over and things like that and he called for some assistance some sort of backup from admin and no one showed up i mean it's mm. it's it's sad how how can the teacher be respected or how can like the lesson sort of fluently proceed if those sorts of things are going on and they're not checked 
I, and I think from the, the student perspective as well, if you're trying to learn and they're letting kids get away with that, you know, and I've had that issue in my classroom because I'm in the high school and having kids totally disrespecting the classroom and the kids that want to learn, the kids that want to get something out of high school, make it worth their time, uh, they can't because these other kids and the teacher is, you know, he's got his hands tied. So Gifford, I suppose this is the part of the segment where I throw it back at you and just ask you, I don't know, like if you had a lot of money that you could sort of throw at an issue, uh, what would you want to tackle and how maybe would that money be allocated? What would you do with it? Uh, yeah, as I said to start that there's some things that you can't just change in education very easily, but I would say if we would want to improve the education across the board, uh, just double teacher salary. Uh, right now just go start writing twice the biggest checks and all of a sudden we will clearly make a difference in people's education now basing some of this off of uh the smartest kid in the classroom uh, i assume you've read that book or yeah uh and they're looking at finland and how it takes a lot to become a teacher and it is a respected job and to be a teacher means something and to be in the classroom with that teacher means something and they do very well. And the teachers have the energy to give to teen. Teenagers take a lot of energy. So even if you have a kid that isn't able to connect, if you have a teacher that's being well uh, you know, compensated, they can make it worthwhile. Whereas we look at um, a lot of you know, our colleagues, and again, I've been working coming up on almost my second decade. A lot of my colleagues haven't quite been qualified to be teaching in a comprehensive high school. Totally. So if you were going to like, start this i mean would it be with new hires i so many of the teachers i work with educators whatever not just teachers necessarily like they're dinosaurs they've been in there for so long and even if they're not there are so many there's just a lot of bad teachers now you're you're firing all the teachers and you are they gotta apply for that job harsh yeah no i would have to go back and, and apply for my job and say look at all this experience i have and cross my fingers However, we're going to, you know, it put some pressure on me because would I be a better teacher if I was making twice as much? Knowing that some other kid wants my job, yeah, I might I might work a little little more. But let's wait till after I retire, then I'm going to cash this blank check. All right, uh, next block four, and this is one, uh, another thing that, uh, compels us to be together is we both love music on uh, on on a, almost a spiritual level if people believe in spirits and stuff but uh, don't uh, <laughs> this one uh, gonna let Lewis talk about this so this is uh, three things music yeah so in this section here uh, we'll be talking about like a band or maybe a genre a venue a scene something maybe um, hopefully something that it's not you're not familiar with so you can be I don't know sort of informed or like aware of something uh, that's new to you and the band that I want to talk about for this first pilot episode is Institute uh, they were formed in Austin Texas roughly around 2013 and it was kind of a collaboration between members of some of the heavy hitting local punk bands that were pretty hot at the time that were gaining a lot of esteem uh, like Glue, Wiccans and my favorite at the time when I lived in Austin Reside who I really really enjoyed um, it was at the time of the final kind of heyday of Austin before it became just like really bastardized with that corporate takeover of the city. Like I'm sure Austin's probably like pretty cool, but like there, it's just not the same. And I know that's sort of cliche to talk about, but the city has really changed a lot. 
their first formal full length was released in 2015, Catharsis. Uh, and it's really outstanding, like right out of the gate. They're just really uh, pretty great. Though my personal favorite is probably their two th- 2017 release, Subordination. Um, it looks like their most recent full length, Readjusting the Locks, which I've actually not listened to, was released in 2019. It wouldn't surprise me if the band broke up and is over, kind of having like run its course and then just then moving on, the members moving on to do like other like new projects. It seemed like that's just kind of like the style of those bands. Um, but I, re- I really hope the band is at least dormant and they're like actively like remaining. They continue to record and really re- release more material tour, et cetera. I'd love to see them here in Portland. That'd be outstanding. Um, the band initially took a ton of post-punk cues from Warsaw, which was like the primordial band that turned into Joy Division. Um, and there is a very, very strong attenuated influence from the, ba- from the Danish post-punk band Ice Age, who was also heavily influenced by Warsaw and Joy Division. Uh, you hear this most in the vocals, which are like deliberately slurred and as though like the singer is drunk, which is like purely apathetic, like really a lot of ed- attitude and just sort of like edgy sort of uh, energy and attitude going into it, which I think can be pretty off-putting for some people who don't like that apathy sort of thing. But like, you, it's, it's a part of able to see style. them live? Yeah, I saw Reside like several times. I saw glue a couple of times i never saw wiccans um and i did see institute in one of their early forms but it was like in houston and it wasn't really like i think the best maybe performance that they could have they they sort of live in and they reside in um the energy and the ethos and the culture of austin and the punk scene at the time and so it was was a really special thing to be a part of that and to see those guys all right so that was Three things, or was that just the first thing? Three big things. That was, okay, that was, all right, they were, okay, three things. Got it. All right, block five uh, is something uh, that is also near and dear to both of us is psychology. Uh, Both uh, spend a lot of time uh, in and out uh, with psychology, and so I wanted to just, uh, there's so much going on. Psychology is uh, ever evolving. I thought that'd be fun to maybe just talk about some of the the latest research stuff that's uh, coming out. How's that sound? Sound Sounds like great. Yeah. Um, Naturally interesting. This would be a good segment for both of us. Yeah, because it, it's it's totally fascinating. And this one, uh, first one I found is uh, called "Chemical Imbalance in Forebrain Discovered in People." with obsessive compulsive disorder. That's OCD, a shorthand, of course. And I found this interesting because my son just gave me a book on OCD, so I was very excited to kind of see what's latest research. And this is uh, some work done at the University of Cambridge. And OCD is not a, I mean, we we talk about, but it really does affect like 3% of the world's population deals with something from like mild to severe. do Lucy, can you speak to like what does a severe case look like? Yeah, we were kind of talking about this a little bit previously. Um, there's one student who I work with um, who has a very unusual gait um, with these sort of like jerking motions, and this isn't like maybe like quintessential like in your mind OCD, not like cartoony OCD characteristics, but like uh, the student doesn't even realize that she's doing it and has these sort of. Like, almost like from side to side sort of like jerking occasional like strides in the walk and it's resulting from not like not stepping on cracks but just feeling like this compulsion uh in in needing to do that 
um, and I guess otherwise more like cartoony forms that you could think of are just really obsessive over the top, like hand washing or ridiculous, absurd rituals that the individual feels that they need to perform in order to just have some sort of like comfort and okayness with the yeah, world. Yeah, and, and, and a mild one would be, yeah, maybe you do like to make sure you're, you're you can't wash your hands before you go out. But then there's some severe, like in this book I was reading about uh, some this girl in Ethiopia that was actually eating the mud wall of her house and had eaten, had eaten, eaten. She had uh, several kilos of, mm. of mud, you know, pack that she couldn't stop herself from eating. Fortunately, she uh, got some help. So but what this, uh, this research is saying, they I'm sure like what that story failed to mention though, is that the walls were actually covered with ranch dressing. So it was probably pretty good. And what I found cool about this, uh, this study was a couple things. One is that they used uh, magnetic resident spectroscopy. So basically using magnets to study the brain. It's a new age of uh, psychological, psychological research into functions of the brain. And because the brain uses neurotransmitters, which are, have electricity in them, you can manipulate the brain through magnets. But apparently now, from what I'm seeing in this, they're actually able to detect a specific neuroactivity in the brain by the changes in the wavelengths. Kind of cool. The second thing that was interesting about this is that when they're talking about OCD is they were able to narrow down what specific neurotransmitters were playing a role in the OCD. And specifically, they noticed that people with OCD had elevated levels of glutamine, which it, the brain uses to, to speed up its, its, its thinking process, what the nourishment that the, the neuron needs. And then they're also in the brains also have reduced levels of GABA, which is uh, slows down neural transmission. And so these, you know, obviously that's going to create a lot of extra firing uh, in the brain. And when you start to think about why people are behaving, you think of OCD, is it really just a, a neural thing? And if we can get some handle on that, could lead to some future treatments. The second story I wanted to uh, do was a kind of a fun one about... Um, Violence, because we have this notion that violence is an impulsive thing. But this study done by the Virginian Commonwealth University uh, came with a study called uh, Controlled Cruelty. The study finds aggression can arise from successful self-control. So the authors of this uh, have debunked the idea that people have uh, that act violently have less self-control. And actually, uh, they came up with, I think the quote from the research was something like, vengeful people tend to exhibit greater uh, premeditation. So that it, when you're going to do something violent to somebody, you take the time to make sure it works. So then we're differentiating here between like, uh, very like deliberate, like calculated, like planned, maybe aggression or violence versus that of like the reactive sort of the impulsive maybe aggression that might occur. Yeah. I, I, I think that's kind of what they're thinking about here in this sort of nation, because if, if you, you know, get punched, your instinct is to punch back. So that's fight or flight sort of reaction, yeah. violent uh, aggression. Maybe this is specifically talking about violence, maybe separate from aggression. So this is, I'm going to hurt somebody. Okay. I'm going to make a plan. Like you think about those school shooters, they always have a, a plan or it always seems like they present that in the, the media that we get about it, that they, you know, had a notebook or something. They were journaling about it. They had a plan. Uh, and so, you know, if we think if we look at a violence in that particular way that these people do have a lot of self-control uh, kind of changes the equation on that. Listeners, thank you very much for checking in. Thank you very much for listening to this uh, initial pilot of our podcast here. We are going to be working out some of the kinks, adding some 
uh, transition sound uh, as opposed to this goofy ding that we've been using, oh. which has been pretty funny. The I mean, ding I've, is I've liked ding. it, but we do need um, some transitions. Yeah, we do. We'll be working on sort of this stuff in the meantime and sort of post-production of some of these episodes and future episodes. And uh, yeah, I think we'll hand it over to Gifford for final word. Yeah, we wanted to uh, get this pushed out. So maybe uh, even though we want A quality all the time, uh, sometimes the perfection gets in the way of production. So want to get what we've done. And uh, Luce has ensured me that this outro, there will be some music uh, playing underneath. Don't know what it is yet, but in the uh, final... There will be music uh, to say goodbye. Thanks for listening, and I hope you catch our next one. Yeah, later.